This is the Get a Game Plan podcast hosted by the Louisiana Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, or GOSEP. I'm Mike Steele, the Communications Director for GOSEP. Thank you for joining us. On September 27th, Governor John Bell Edwards declared October to be Cybersecurity Awareness Month in the state of Louisiana, signing a proclamation in front of members of the Louisiana Cybersecurity Commission. By signing this proclamation, Governor Edwards is simultaneously kicking off a cybersecurity awareness campaign led by the Commission. The goal of this effort is to improve Louisiana's cybersecurity ecosystem. Governor Edwards strives to make Louisiana a leader in the cybersecurity field, protecting our citizens and businesses with legislation backing that stand. Much of the focus of this episode will examine what is being done and why this is so important for the state moving forward. Before we get started with our interviews, we like to start each episode with an emergency preparedness tip. We are adjusting things a little bit because of the focus of this episode. Here are some of the practical things you can do to protect your personal information. First, realize anyone can be a target of cybercrime. Keep your software up to date. You need the latest security features on your electronic devices. Avoid suspicious emails or phone calls. Cyber criminals will use any form of communication to trick you into giving important information. Obviously, practice good password management, change your passwords on a regular basis, and mix it up with various characters, and never leave any of your devices unattended. Make sure your devices are locked down while not in use. Those are your preparedness tips for this episode. That brings us to our first interview. Jeff Moulton is the Executive Director of the Stevenson National Center or Security Research and Training at LSU. He is also one of 15 commissioners appointed by Governor Edwards to the first Louisiana Cybersecurity Commission. Goals of the Cybersecurity Commission center around cybersecurity risk, awareness, legislation, economic value, and development. He joins us now by phone. Sir, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. If we could start by uh, talking about the goals for the commission, what do you see moving forward as a state when it comes to cybersecurity? Well, one of the primary goals is just recognizing that this is an important subject to the state, the citizens of the state, the institutions within the state, and the critical infrastructure components within our state. As you know, Louisiana is the epicenter of the petrochemical industry, and that is one of our nation's uh, primary means of uh, sustainability. Anything that can happen to that particular part of the critical infrastructure affects everyone, not just in Louisiana, but the entire United States. So our success, our defense of those critical assets is paramount to the economy throughout the entire country. Our agency at GOSEP, we're taking steps to become more involved in this process. What do you see as the long-term protection efforts? What do you see as, as steps that could be done to help protect the state and our citizens? Well, I think the first thing that we've done, and I think Governor Edwards needs to be lauded for this, is that we've you know, developed this cyber commission. Now, part of the problem with, uh, that I see, and I've been doing this for a very, very long time, is that people do not have a choreographed or coordinated effort. Everyone's doing their own little thing, and they're working like really crazy mad, uh, but there's no synchronization behind the effort, therefore it's not as effective. You know, the bad guys have an advantage on 
the good guys. The bad guys only have to make it work one time to be successful. The good guys have to defend it every time. So they already have an asymmetric advantage. One of the things that Louisiana is ahead of most states on is that we've got a great relationship between the people with capability and capacity like MIGA units at LSU, those of GOSEPs, the Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, and the Louisiana National Guard. I'm on speed dial with General Curtis and Jim Wascom. We talk almost every day, and we are comparing notes to make sure that this state's cyber readiness is at its all-time high. You know, one of the things we talked about at the beginning of the show was some cybersecurity tips for the public, you know, for personal use. Do you think the public understands how great a risk cybersecurity is at this point? I want to say yes. Uh, my experience tells me otherwise. I actually give a, a, a class that's talking about uh, the, uh, the Internet of You, not the Internet of Things, but the Internet of You. And my briefing and my speech is actually called This is Personal. Because you got to understand, this is not a threat against any individual. There's not a bunch of kids in their mom's basement hacking computers at the wee hours of night. Most of these scripts and most of these exploits are automated. They're coming from abroad, literally all around the world, and they're looking for vulnerabilities in network configurations and actually devices uh, now with the Internet of Things that they can exploit automatically. So you're always on defense. You need to be cognizant of the exposure level that you have as an individual, as a business, as a state entity, and as part of uh, your business base and the critical infrastructure components, like the oil and gas industries here in Louisiana, they're constantly on defense. That's good advice. Are there simple steps? Would those password changes and, and different little steps like that add up to a bigger defense? Absolutely. I mean, there's no there's no single bullet. There's no one answer to fix all problems. And I and I use this analogy quite a bit when I'm talking in public, which I do quite frequently. You know, I, I, I liken the cyber problem to the flu. You know, we have had the influenza with us for thousands of years. We've never been able to conquer the flu. In fact, last year we lost in the United States alone over 50,000 lives due to the flu. Right? We've never figured out how to cure the flu. We cannot inoculate against it. But there are preventative measures that you can take to help you, you know, better your chances of not being infected. It's the same thing in the digital world. There are certain hygiene, I call it cyber hygiene, hygienic measures that you can take that are not complex. You don't have to be a PhD electrical engineer to understand how to turn your router off at night before you go to bed. That lowers your exposure to anything nefarious coming across the internet by at least seven hours or however long you sleep. That doesn't take anything but a quick flip of a switch and then a quick flip of the switch back on at night. Low-tech solutions in a high-tech world are your best line of defense at the individual level. Good point. So we have some, um, I guess, real-time things going on right now with some social media platforms and some security concerns there. Have you been uh, taking a look at what's going on and what can you tell us about uh, what you see with some of those platforms? As uh, you're very well aware, I'm sure, that the Facebook was hacked recently and about 50 million user accounts were actually spilled out into the dark web and uh, the bad guys have got uh, personal information on the users of those platforms. I'm not a big proponent of social media. I understand a lot of people use it. Uh, but what I do know through experience, and I've been doing this again for a very, very long time, that is whenever a corporation comes out with the fact that they've been hacked, you know, Equifax most recently was hacked up in Atlanta. You know, initially it was 100 million, then it was 140 million, now it's 143 million. 
You know, so every single day, the what the the initial outcry was ends up getting worse. You know, a few years back when Yahoo got hacked, you know, Melissa Mayer said there was 1.3 million user accounts. Then it was a billion user accounts, and when it ended up all said and done, it was about three billion user accounts, and all their associated information was compromised. Yet nobody got held accountable. And nobody lost their jobs over this. Finally, Richard Smith at Equifax got forced to resign. But what most people don't realize is that he had a multi-million dollar severance. I mean, fire me. And yeah. Give me a multi-million dollar severance, right? Right. So I mean, think these kind of things happen every day. What you got to really be aware of, and I, and I recommend this to a lot of people, is there's no one out there looking out for your best interest. We'll see how this whole Facebook debacle you know, plays out. I'll be really interested to see how they uh, how they come through the lawsuits that are going to be associated and have already been filed, by the way, in the European Union for breach of the general data privacy regulations. So that's going to be really interesting to see how that case uh, actually pans out. Uh, if uh, if the fines are associated with that GDPR breach uh, are realized, that could cost Facebook up to four billion dollars a day. Wow. Uh, you know, tied up in court for years to come, but we'll see how that all pans out. And that's the kind of thing that we need to have here in the United States. We need to hold these corporations who are taking our private information and spilling it out to the world accountable for that. We would not tolerate that if someone was taking your money out of your bank. You'd be pitching a fit. But we've seen, you know, we live in a society now that values convenience over security and privacy. And that is unfortunate because we, you know, back in the day when I was young, you, know, there, you couldn't dream of giving your social security number to anybody for any reason. Mm-hmm. And now we put it out there in a digital format for the world to share. Uh, it's just a little bit bizarre. But, you know, there's a cultural shift that's occurred where we don't value privacy and security as much as we do convenience. So if someone's taking a look at this, and I know I've seen conversations on Facebook where people indicated uh, they thought their accounts had been hacked and that type of thing. From a practical standpoint, are there things our listeners can do to kind of check their records, check their accounts, what should they be looking for as far as potential problems? Well, we don't have enough time in this talk show to go through all that, but I will tell you the first thing that you should do is make sure that you have some sort of identity theft insurance. It's very reasonably priced. You know, it goes as low as 10 and as high as $30 a month, uh, and I recommend that for everybody. If you have children, grandchildren, or someone that you love that's under the age of 18, freeze their credit. There is absolutely positively no reason for a child to have a credit line. Hackers are actually targeting children now because they know they're going to get a 15 to 18 year head start. And I tell people, just like uh, you know, an adult, a child is entitled to free free credit checks every year. You know, go to each of the uh, each of the credit unions. You know, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. Request a credit check on your child's social security number every quarter. Just rotate it around. It never costs you a dime. Right, freeze their credit until they get ready to go to college or until they're actually out of the house. Then defrost it, and they're no longer vulnerable. But right now, the bad guys, on average, and I've got records to show this, are targeting kids about 35 times more likely for a child to be a victim of identity theft than an adult. Scary things to consider, right there. So, uh, you know, it's good to know you guys and the commission and everyone. You know, is always addressing these types of issues. Uh, as we kind of wrap up, where do you see the commission uh, going forward? What do you see as some of the next steps uh, for the state going forward? Well, I think we've gone from concept and 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 theory, and we're moving into the execution and practice modality. That's where I see it next. Uh, you know, I, I would be remiss if I don't bring up the fact that you know this 
October is National Cyber Awareness Month. The commission and, and, the, and the governor have highlighted that. You know, the, I don't know how many of your listeners actually know what that means, but you know, just very similar to the uh, the breast cancer awareness campaign, we're trying to do the the same in the digital world, right? So they have themes, and every week there's four weeks in October this year. So we have like week theme or week one. It's the theme is is make your home your haven, right? Make it digitally safe. The Internet of Things is pervasive. Your garage door opener, if you have electrical tenor or any other personal assistance, you need to understand the vulnerability that introduces to you. If you have kids, they have interactive toys now. What you don't realize is those are surveillance devices, right? Mm -hmm. They need to be able to be secured, and if they can't be secured, you need to understand the risk that introduces to your house, to your home. They have smart teapots. There's been a case up in Wisconsin where a woman was actually locked in her house through an exploit that was launched against her electronic and smart door lock that was executed through the teapot <laughs> on the stove. So make your home your haven. Make sure that that's safe. That's week one. Week two, it's all about jobs. There's a ton of jobs available for people in the country in cybersecurity. It is a very, very highly demanded, very, very technical skill set and very rewarding career. It pays well and it's got job longevity and and security for the, the far term, as far as I can see. Week three is basically this is a team sport, right? It's everyone's job to ensure online safety and to practice personal cyber hygiene. If we just take care of what little piece of the world that we can control, that contributes to the greater good and we'll be more secure as a society. Mm-hmm. And of course, the fourth is a little bit out of most individuals' hands, but it's where the Governor's Cyber Commission comes in. And that's safeguarding the nation's critical infrastructure. Here in Louisiana, we've got transportation, we've got medical, we've got financing, we've got mostly petrochemical uh, corporations up and down that Mississippi River that are very, very vulnerable. Uh, And that's one of the things that the Cyber Commission is taking seriously. My subcommittee is what we call ESS-17. So I'm in charge of doing the state's incident response plan. So when a digital disaster does occur, how do we choreograph the effort to resolve it? How do we marshal the resources? How do we bring the expertise to bear in the area which is needed in an effective way? Just like we do with the hurricanes, right? Mm-hmm. When a hurricane comes, we've got a plan, and we go out and we react to it, and we do the incident response planning. Disasters are local. The federal government is not going to help Louisiana in a timely enough manner to be any good. All disasters are local. And that's one of the things that I think Katrina, the lessons of Katrina brought to Louisiana. We need to be able to count on that on the digital side of this equation as well. And if someone is looking for information or resources uh, related to these topics, uh, do you have maybe a couple in mind that, that people could go to, maybe websites or, or various uh, resources? Well, you can look at any newspaper across the country, you know, and I'm a readaholic, so I read everything all day long. It's the only way I can stay on top of all this. You know, the cybersecurity world is evolving rapidly by the I call it click speed. By the time you click on, you know, the exploit is already outdated. So, you know, it moves pretty quick. I mean, you can pick up USA Today. You can pick up CNN News. You can watch Fox News. You can watch any any variety of news sources. And you're going to see at least one every hour article about cybersecurity or some vulnerability, most recently the Facebook exploit. Uh, it happens every day, every minute, all around the world. I have one document that I read every day. It's called The Cyberwire. It's kind of a conglomeration of cyber events across the world, across the media spectrum, uh, and it's all networks where you can just click on the link and it'll take you to the article. And I, I try to peruse that, if not read it comprehensively every day. 
Well, sir, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we look forward to working with you guys in the future as the commission really gets rolling. We welcome you back at any time. Thank you. Very good. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. we'll move to the emergency resource segment for this episode. We're also going to change things up a little bit this month. Louisiana once again answered the call for support when Hurricane Florence hit the Carolinas. Many of our Louisiana emergency management personnel traveled to the region as part of state-to-state assistance efforts. The devastation in North Carolina was very similar to the Louisiana floods in 2016 and the flooding associated with Hurricane Harvey last year. The North Carolina Disaster Relief Fund is accepting contributions to help survivors with immediate unmet needs. Contributions can be made by texting Florence to 20222. You can also mail a contribution to the North Carolina Disaster Relief Fund that addresses 20312 Mail Service Center, Raleigh, North Carolina, 27699. That is this month's resource segment. That leads us to our second interview with a similar subject closer to home. Many people continue to rebuild in Louisiana after our 2016 floods impacted most of the state. Lisa Lee is the Director of Disaster Operations for Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Baton Rouge, and Paula Davis is the Clinical Director of Maternity, Adoption, and Behavioral Health Services. They both join us now by phone. Welcome to the podcast. And thank you guys for having us on. We want to start out by talking about the things Catholic Charities focuses on in times of disaster. Sure, absolutely. So we focus on several different areas um, within preparedness, response, and recovery. One of the things that we do throughout the year is focus on disaster preparedness. Uh, We place a specific emphasis on churches, both Catholic and Protestant and really mobilizing them and volunteers within the churches and the community to be able to respond quickly in the event of a disaster. Another area that we're really focused on right now is working with immigrant populations. We actually have a dedicated AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer who is educating those immigrant communities on things like having a game plan. On the response side, after a disaster, we're not first responders, but we're early responders. And so what that means is we go out into the communities and we see what people need and we see what needs are not being met. And so we'll do things like set up point of distribution sites in areas that are maybe a little isolated, a little bit harder to get to. Um, And we provide basic necessities like cleanup kits, like water, um, things of that nature. We also go into the shelters and work very closely with the Red Cross so we can figure out what those folks need to get out of the shelter very quickly and see if we can provide that. Sometimes it's something as simple as a gas card to be able to go out of state and stay with a family member. So those are the things that we focus on in preparedness and response. And then we stick around for the long term, providing disaster case management. We help people work through the process of applying for FEMA, um, applying to state resources like Restore Louisiana, and really just help walk with them through the process of recovery, which can often be very cumbersome. 
we recently um, worked with FEMA and the state of Louisiana on a disaster case management program. And through that program, we were able to help about 6,000 households. Are there any new efforts uh, as far as any of those phases are concerned? Any Anything new that the public can expect right now? Yes. One of the things, the new things that we're doing is we recently received a grant through Catholic Charities USA. And that grant is allowing us to go to the long-term recovery committees in the different communities that are still recovering from the floods. And we're working with our partners in the communities, such as St. Vincent de Paul, Disaster Case Management, the United Methodist, and local United Way organizations to help elderly, disabled, and low-income homeowners who were left out of other resources. These are the folks that didn't receive anything from FEMA, didn't receive anything from Restore, and they're still trying to rebuild their homes and their lives. And so what we're able to do is offer some direct assistance in doing those repair and rebuilds. That's great to know because it can be a very complicated process when you when you talk about the overall recovery process. Now, how did this work get started? How did Catholic Charities get involved in this from the beginning? So Catholic Charities has been doing disaster work since we were formed in 1964. But we really ramped up starting with Hurricane Katrina, Rita, Gustav, and Ike. And we also did case management after Hurricane Isaac and now the 2016 floods. We've learned a whole lot since then, and we've become the local experts in disaster recovery. Um, some of our subject matter experts on staff have worked with the CCUSA network of agencies on topics like communication, advocacy, leadership, disaster case management. And we actually go out of state. We are getting ready to send folks, our staff, to um, Hawaii to help with disaster recovery over there and also North and South Carolina. Yeah, the Carolinas were definitely uh, hit hard again this year, very similar to what they faced back in Matthew. Now, when you talk about those lessons you've learned uh, over the years as an organization, are there things that you see that could benefit you know, our listeners or families out there as well? Yes, Absolutely. We've learned from experience working with families and individuals that, you know, when you get FEMA assistance, it's usually for a dedicated purpose, like rental assistance or home repairs or sometimes even replacing a vehicle. And it's really important that people know they have to use that money for its intended purpose. So if you get money for rental assistance, you can't go in and use that for food or for clothing or anything like that because what you're going to have to do is show receipts of what you did with that money in order to be eligible for more assistance. A lot of folks don't know that, and so we run into that a whole lot, and our case managers work really hard to help people navigate through that process. Also, paying your taxes is really important, making sure that you're up to date on those because you may need those to prove income or residency to be able to qualify for certain types of assistance. And then also, people don't think about this, but when you're evacuating before you leave, grab something that actually shows that you lived in the house, a light bill, a water bill, even a cell phone bill or, you know, cable, a mortgage, something that shows that you were actually living there at your address on the date of the disaster. That's really important later on to prove eligibility for a lot of different programs. And then also make sure that you take pictures of your damage with the time and date on them 
Not only that, but if it's a flood, please take pictures of the water level. And if you can, use some type of measurement to show how high the water was. We've, we've run into a lot of folks who are in a dispute with either FEMA or Restore about the actual water level. So that's really important going forward. And that's one of the things that we always try to stress to the public. You know, your important paperwork, uh, things that deal with your insurance policies, and, and like you said, ownership of a home, birth certificates, those types of things. If you can find a way to put copies of those on a disc or a thumb drive or something and, and keep that with your emergency supplies, it's so important. So uh, it's good to know you guys are stressing that as well. Now, kind of moving on to another subject, disasters trigger all kinds of mental health problems. Uh, talk to us about what Catholic Charities does concerning that area. Well, you mentioned earlier, and this is Paula, um, about lessons learned. And one of the things that we learned from previous disasters is that people have responses to disaster that are also emotional. And if we don't address those emotional needs, that might impair their ability to fully engage in the recovery process to get back in their homes and to resume life as normal. So we've really done a lot of work to include um, disaster behavioral health with our case management to provide those services to the community. And how would someone get in in, uh, in touch with those services? How would they find out more information on that? They could contact our office, uh, the Behavioral Health Department, and that number is 225-336-8708. So again, that number is 225-336-8708 for more information on the uh, mental health programs available through Catholic Charities. Finally, if we could talk to you guys about what advice do you have for people who have maybe lost everything in some of these recent disasters? You know, it can be a very devastating thing for an individual or family to go through. What advice would you give people dealing with that problem? So, number one, one of, I think the biggest important thing is to seek help and to know that Catholic Charities is available if you have children in the home, you want to know children tend to do as well as their parents. So you want to make sure that you're taking care of your needs. Sometimes we see changes in behavior. People might have trouble eating. They might have trouble sleeping. That's the time to start seeking assistance. Um, if they're moving in with a family member, we recommend that they create what we call a harmony agreement. And you do that on the front end before trouble starts. So you want to talk about what are the rules of the household? What are the financial rules? Who's going to pay what bills? What about the chores around the house? But you want to do this before things get heated on the front end so that everybody is on the same page. That's definitely good advice. You know, in a lot of cases, there were maybe two or three uh, families living in the same household while we tried to get through, you know, the different phases of the recovery process. I want to thank you guys for joining us. If we could go back to that new grant that you guys mentioned, what's a good way for people to find out more information about that or, or possibly even apply for that type of assistance? Well, they can always call Catholic Charities, and our number is 225-336-8700. But also it's important to know for those resources, a person has to be enrolled in disaster case management. That is actually provided by one of our partners, which is St. Vincent de Paul. They are still taking cases, and so to get into the disaster case management program that would open the doors to possibly more resources, they would need to call the state 1-800 number, and that is 844-581-2207. Okay, and just repeating those numbers, Catholic Charities is 225 
336-8700 or the state line for applying is 844-581-2207. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Please feel free to come back on with any updates you may have. for joining us for the Get a Game Plan podcast. Please encourage others to share this resource and subscribe. We want to thank Jeff Moulton, Lisa Lee, and Paula Davis for the information they provided today on cybersecurity and Catholic charities. We also want to thank the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency for the use of their studio. Sign up to be an organ donor today. Find out more at donatelifela.org. For more on the topics we talked about today, go to getagameplan.org and don't forget to follow GOSEP on Facebook and Twitter. Remember, get a game plan. We will talk to you again in November. This podcast is produced in partnership with LOPA and the Gifted Life Podcast. Find out more about organ, eye, and tissue donation by listening to the Gifted Life podcast at thegiftedlife.org or download it from your favorite podcast app.